Witness Docs from Stitcher. Have a good shot on that one. There you go. Heel down. Go! Wow. <laughs> that was nice. It's a sunny morning in L.A., and I'm riding a horse at the California Polo Club. It's a big stable with a dirt arena. I'm here learning the basics of the game from a polo champ named Domingo Questel. I gotta say, I think I'm a natural, y'all. Goal! Nice! Backshot specialist! Domingo's a phenomenal teacher. He also happens to be Dominican. Like me, and like Ruby. Did you know about Ruby Rosa when you were a kid? You know, here, you know, you know he was a uh, polo player, and uh, he was in the army as well. And, uh, no, he was a great, great one, yes. What makes a good polo player? Uh, good control the holes, control the situation where you, where you are. He was a really, really good player. Good, heel down. I can't share Ruby's story without talking about polo. He loved this sport so much. Just Google his name and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Ruby started playing polo when he joined the military in the DR. He even became captain of the national team. He started his own team, Cibao La Pampa. Ruby's relationship with polo lasted longer than any of his marriages. His polo ponies were there for him until the end. Quite literally. Ruby won his last polo tournament on the day before he died. I was on the losing team. He had won the cup. His old pal Taki Theodokropoulos played against him that day. Taki was a big polo fan, too. Everybody who has played polo, you get addicted immediately. What do you think he loved about it so much? Polo is a kind of, it's the only sport I know that you have great pleasure playing it. And it's the biggest, most boring, except for sailing, uh, sport to watch. Because the spectators do not see the speed that, that is played on. And it's great fun to play. It's wonderful because it's very exhilarating, you know, to take a backhand. You take the man, you're actually fighting with the man, like they do in cowboy movies. You attack him. So you're fighting with other people in a civilized manner. It's, it's a terrific sport. Like any sport, polo takes practice. It's basically golf in an earthquake. You know, fast, rough, easily one of the most dangerous sports in the world. Ruby would spend almost every afternoon at the stables, taking his horses out to ride and train them for hours. See, in a polo game, you only ride a horse for a few minutes. Tops. You run them as hard and as fast as you can. And then you switch them out. You get a fresh horse and you do it all over again. I guess a living thing can only go so fast for so long. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Ruby's fast life. And the moment, his run came to an end. I'm Christopher Rivas, and this is Ruby Rosa, Episode 9, The Last Sprint. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
The last time we checked in with Rupi, he was marrying and divorcing the richest women in the world, dating movie stars, breaking up other people's marriages. He was flying airplanes for fun, jet-setting across Europe, performing late-night ballads for his legendary friends. This was his life in the 1950s. Oof. And what a life it was. But Marty Wall says the high life eventually came to an end. I mean, talk about, you know, a, a drop from the, the, the peak of the mountain to the lonely valley. And what a drop it was. Just a decade later, in 1965, Ruby crashed his Ferrari into a tree and died. He was 56 years old. He was married to a woman half his age with more energy than he had. By many accounts, Ruby was lonely, drunk, depressed. So, what happened? Erika, tu sais bien comment se font les enfants. Oui, en se mariant. Une sainte nictouche. Une vraie sainte nictouche. This is a French film from 1955 called Future Vedette. It features a young woman named Odile Rodin. She's thin, blonde, playing a school teacher. She was so young, fresh, so pretty, with uh, I don't know what mysterious look in her eyes. I immediately grabbed onto her. This is Ruby in his memoir describing the night he met Odile. I spoke to her about my country, the Caribbean Sea, the sunsets over the corals, the coconut groves and mangroves, the sandy beaches. She listened to me smiling. I told her the pleasure I would have in making her discover this warm place bathed in sea foam, where life is slow and made for love. Where life is slow and made for love. Is this a rum commercial? Ruby is 31 years older than Odile when they met. Yes, he is almost 50, and she's only 17 at the time. And she has no idea about Ruby's reputation. But her mother certainly does, and her mom is not excited about her young daughter getting involved with an international playboy. She tries to shut the whole thing down immediately. But then, one night, Ruby takes Odile's mother to the dance floor. After just one spin, she's changed her mind about him. He must really have some moves. Ruby and Odile get married in 1956, his fifth wedding. Ruby is still a diplomat for the DR. And just a year later, he gets a new assignment. Dominican dictator Rafael Trujillo sends Ruby and his new bride to a country that is perfect for them. Today, Havana is one of the most modern and colorful cities in the world. Cuba, baby. At night, the city takes on a new complexion. In the 50s, everybody was partying in their jets, in their yachts, and in the Caribbean, and treasure hunting, and this and that. Chasing Ruby co-author Isabella Wall says Cuba was basically America's backyard in this era. The Caribbean was the, you know, the jet-setting mecca. Havana in the 1950s was more than this nice tropical vacation spot. It was a wild party, y'all. Home to gamblers, nightclubbers, mobsters like Meyer Lansky and Sam Giacana. Frank Sinatra spent so much time at the Hotel Nacional that newspapers called it his home away from home. Odile said Havana was the wildest place in the world. 
Ruby loves Wild. He fit right in. He even brought his polo ponies over and set them up in a stable near the embassy. We don't exactly know why Trujillo sent Ruby to Cuba, but it could have had something to do with Cuba's precarious political situation. The president of Cuba at the time was U.S.-backed Fulgencio Batista, but Fidel Castro, maybe you've heard of him, was orchestrating a full-blown communist revolution. Every country in the Western Hemisphere was keeping a close eye on Cuba, especially its closer neighbor, the DR. Sending Ruby was a smart choice for Trujillo. Castro, like everyone else, was supposedly very charmed by Ruby. Ruby used that to his advantage. He made weapons deals with both Castro and Batista. The DR would be considered an ally no matter who ended up on top. But Ruby didn't have to play both sides for long. July banners, joyous followers of Fidel Castro sweep triumphantly through the Cuban capital hours after their rebellion had toppled the regime of Fulgencio Batista. The 26th of July... This is a newsreel from 1959. The rebel forces were ecstatic. But the international diplomatic community was on edge. There were still battles breaking out in the streets. Odile said her last weeks in Havana were frightening. Quote, machine guns were going off everywhere, and everyone was on the floor. It was raining bullets. She told Taki a story about being woken up one night by a loud explosion, that it sounded like it was right outside the embassy. I think Ruby and Odile were making love, because the way she told it, so I remember making a joke saying, did you, did you know it was a grenade or did you think it was Ruby? Uh, orgasm. Anyway, ha ha ha. But uh, yes, uh, they threw a grenade and they had to leave. It's the middle of the night. There are explosions everywhere. Ruby's in danger. A diplomat in the middle of a full-fledged historical crisis. Ruby is worried about his wife's safety. But also, Ruby is very worried about his polo ponies. He apparently calls a friend in the U.S. saying, They are having a revolution. We have to get my polo ponies out. Eventually, Ruby and Odile and the ponies, I hope, get out of Cuba and head to Belgium. Maybe Ruby thinks it's time for a bit of rest and relaxation. You know, a chance to get back to his old ways of collecting a paycheck while not really doing any work. For a few years, things are low-key. But in May of 1961, there are newspaper reports that Ruby is hard at work. No, not diplomatic work. No, sir. He is training his polo team. He's getting ready to play a tournament in England that summer. But the team doesn't wind up making it to the tournament. Assassin's bullets put a bloody end to the 31-year dictatorship of Dominican strongman Rafael Trujillo. His violent death creates a new and dangerous political vacuum in Latin America. For without the Generalissimo's strong personality, a political chaos could develop. Even in death, Trujillo is a danger to the world. Rafael Trujillo, the bloody dictator of the Dominican Republic for 30 years, was assassinated while driving outside the capital city. Ruby's former father-in-law, his lifelong benefactor, his violent frenemy, he's gone. Ruby's memoir doesn't cover Trujillo's assassination, so we don't really know how Ruby felt about it. But I can imagine that he was unsettled by it. For one thing, he no longer had a reliable expense account. The DR was in turmoil and political upheaval, so 
It wasn't exactly worried about keeping its diplomats well-funded. Plus, the United States was keeping a close eye on the Dominican Republic. In fact, the U.S. is rumored to have made multiple attempts to kill Trujillo. The CIA supplied the rebels who ultimately assassinated him with guns. Milagros Ricor, our Dominican history expert, says it all had to do with Cuba. The United States was very afraid. Trujillo was going to be defeated by this bunch of youngsters with revolutionary ideas inspired by Fidel Castro. The U.S. didn't want a second communist revolution in the Caribbean. But again, this leaves Ruby in a precarious situation. His home country is reeling, and he will officially lose his position just a year later. But a tigre always lands on his feet. And in this case, our tiger lands right in the middle of a pack of rats. Right around the time of Trujillo's death, Ruby gets close to Frank Sinatra and the entire Rat Pack. You know, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, those guys. They are the coolest of the cool. Stars of the new film Ocean's Eleven. Keep your eye on Danny Ocean. He's calling a summit meeting of his own. And it's going to be a summit to top them all. Once at his show in New York City, Sammy Davis Jr. introduces the crowd to two spectators at the front, Ruby and Odile. Another time, Ruby throws a party for Frank Sinatra at his home in Paris. An anonymous jet setter who attended the party told a gossip column that, quote, Ruby is now one of the Rat Pack. Ooh, and get this, she adds, and I quote, Old Ruby makes those rats look like a bunch of mice in a kindergarten. You know, Taki was at that party too. He would have this band of about four or five people who played wonderful songs and in his drawing room, and the drawing room would go on to a very large garden, and he had all his friends, and all his friends were glamorous and very young people and famous models, and, and he was just, uh, he was the best party giver in Paris. And he gave a big party for Sinatra and brought back Teddy Kennedy, who behaved very badly. That's right. Ruby wasn't just rolling with Sinatra and his boys. He was getting on well with Teddy and Teddy's brother. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Yup. That, brother John F. Kennedy, the president of the United States. In 1961, the Kennedys invite Ruby, Sinatra, and some other folks out to their summer home on Cape Cod. Ruby gets a lift on the president's private plane. And then, they all take a yacht cruise around Nantucket Sound. Not too shabby, right? I wish I knew what Ruby and JFK said to each other on this boat. Isabella says she thinks they were talking politics. Here's Ruby, you know, who had been trying to put on a good face on behalf of the country and say things like, you know, if the people want elections, that's what should happen. And he was trying everything he could to not make it look like the Dominican Republic was in, in, well, in the crisis that it was. Who knows? Maybe JFK was trying to suss out if the DR would end up like Cuba, overrun by communists. Or maybe he was seeing if the DR could possibly become a gambling paradise, the next backyard for America. Hey, maybe that's what Sinatra was doing there, if you know what I mean. 
But at the same time that Ruby is sipping cocktails with JFK on a yacht, the FBI is ramping up their investigation of him. The agents track Ruby's flights into and out of the U.S. They interview the hotels he stays at. How long did he stay? What room? Who visited? Who did he call? They have all of these logs from all the phone calls that he was making. And they would go over every number that he called and figure out who that person was. We've confirmed this in the FBI documents. In 1961, Ruby's staying at the historic Gotham Hotel. Here are some of the calls the FBI logs. The Bar Mart, Inc. Sheila Gordon, model. Julius Caruso, hairdressing. Lowe's Theaters. Caruso's Tudor City Beauty Salon. You guys, the FBI is following him and Ruby is getting his hair done. Buying alcohol, calling models. Honestly, I'm surprised there isn't a flower shop on the list. You know, for his uh, famous red rose trick. This is also the same era when the FBI revisits the 1935 murder of Sergio Ben Cosme, which Ruby is suspected of arranging on behalf of Trujillo. Remember, now that Trujillo is dead, Ruby has officially lost his diplomatic immunity. So, the Manhattan DA calls him in for three hours of questioning. Afterwards, he tells reporters, As far as I'm concerned, the matter is finished. Maybe this extra attention from the U.S. government doesn't sit well with Ruby. Because eventually, he stops spending any time in the U.S. The Rubirosas make their home in France. His pal, Sammy Davis Jr., visits them there in 1964. You know, there is a very famous story where Sammy talks about Rubirosa and how as much energy they all had in the Rat Pack, he had like more energy than all of them together because, you know, he would like party all night. And then when they went to bed in the morning and get up at four, he was already had started to drink and was already partying on his own. Sammy wrote in his memoir that he asked Ruby, how do you do it? Do what, Sammy? Night after night and still look as if the gods chose you. Oh, Sammy, Sammy. Your job is being an entertainer. Mine is being a playboy. This is the morning Sammy tells us that Ruby taught him how to kiss a woman's hand. Apparently, it's all about the subtle shift in the eye contact. Sometimes you make it on the way down, sometimes on the way up, sometimes eye contact the whole way. But I imagine that Rumi might have a question for Sammy, too. Sammy, a black man in a white world. A black man whose invitation to Kennedy's inauguration was rescinded because American race relations were too explosive in 1961. Sammy had recently married a white woman, and JFK was reportedly worried it would make Southern voters angry. I imagine that Ruby asks Sammy this. How do you do it, Sammy? How do you, the one-eyed negrito puertorriqueño Jew, swallow it all? Why? And I imagine that Sammy says, You know why. You absolutely know why. We don't have another option, do we? Hey, Ruby, repeat after me. 
Keep your head up. Keep cool. Smile. Keep your head up. Keep cool. And smile. That's how we do it. But y'all, all that smiling, all that pretending, starts to weigh on you. And I think it was starting to weigh on Ruby too. From the outside, Ruby's life after Trujillo doesn't look too different from how it's always been. He keeps up appearances. The friends, the partying, the glamour. But things are changing. Ruby is getting older. He's lost his best source of income. He's under investigation. This horse is coming up on the end of his run. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Mr. Bond? Yes? This is Mr. Goldfinger. How'd you do? How do you do? I gotta hit y'all with a little bit of Bond content here. We're getting close to the end, and so... Remember a couple episodes ago I told you about that time Ruby tried to make a shot-for-shot remake of Goldfinger? I want to revisit that story with a little more context. It's 1965. Ruby's back in Europe. He, Odile, and some other friends are celebrating Taki's honeymoon. Someone has the bright idea to remake this movie shot for shot. So they head out on a boat with some expensive camera equipment. So I fought with uh, Ruby and he swung uh, a a, a, a phony rifle and he hit me on the funny bone and I collapsed with pain. I've never had such pain in my life and I've been taught not to show pain. But just then, the wind blew and blew everything away, plus it put almost a boat on the rocks. It was a total disaster. The entire thing is a drunken mess. Ruby can barely slur out his lines. This story is what comes to mind when I think about Ruby's last years. He's not that old, just 56. But there's something sad about him. About his trying his desperation to remain young and fun and relevant, his desperation to be seen. James Bond can down three martinis at a party and then beat someone in a knife fight. Ruby? Ruby's so drunk he can't even finish a silly project. Ruby and Odile's home is in the countryside, outside of Paris. Maybe Ruby's finally craving the quiet life. Or maybe he's just afraid of being surrounded by the youth and vigor of the city if he can't keep up. Odile, though? Odile is young and beautiful. She can keep up. Ruby insists that she wear these high-neck dresses and not stay out too late. She was pretty and she liked to drink and, you know, have a good time and stuff like that. So that was a rug pulled right from under his behind me. That's Isabella Wall again. And by the way, what a great word. Behiney. You know, when you're behind means you're hiney. Behiney. His decline was also made worse by the fact that the night before he died, he had caught his young, lovely French wife making out with another person in his polo team. 
We'll get to that night he died in just a second, but first, Isabella just said Ruby was getting cheated on. There were actually multiple rumors of Odile cheating on Ruby. Think about this, Ruby, the former world-famous playboy, now unable to keep up with his wife, a playgirl. Marty Wall says Ruby's situation got so bad he was considering divorcing Odile and pursuing a sixth marriage. He was considering marrying one of the Kennedy sisters just to, you know, gain that that power and influence and and money. He uh, decided he was going to make his fortune again on his memoirs. And in the 63, 64, a couple years before he died, nobody was interested. And you think how you go from this character who girls are chasing and young men are chasing because they want to be like him. And now at 56, 57 years old, nobody cares about him anymore. I mean, talk about, you know, a a drop from the, the, the peak of the mountain to the lonely valley. He's in the lonely valley, but at least he's still got polo. He's still got horses. On July 4th, 1965, Ruby and his team play in the championship of the French Open. Taki's on the other team. Ruby's team wins. After the game, everyone goes out to celebrate, including Taki. He had won the cup, and he was very happy, and because he was going through a bad period, I remember he was in a very good mood. We all had dinner at Moustache, then we went to Jimmy's and we was drinking heavily, but it was so almost forced. And then he, he, he was angry with me because I left. I left Ruby at 3 o'clock in the morning from Jimmy's because I had to play a tennis tournament in Nice. While Taki boards a plane to the south of France, Ruby stays out drinking. Odile is there. She arrived in a separate car. Ruby gets another drink. And then Ruby, this man of a thousand faces, this man who always arranged a ride home, who raced cars for fun. We'll drive home at 8 a.m. He'll start the engine of his Ferrari GT V12 engine. 12 horses. And Ruby will crash that horse into a tree at what his obituary calls a high speed. The steering column crushing his chest. The official reports will say suffocation, but I think Ruby dies of heartbreak. His heart crushed. Taki had just landed in Nice. When I arrived there, they said to me, there's a very important call for you. So I said, who's calling? And they said, very important. So I thought something had happened to her family. I picked up the telephone, Ruby Amor. He vient de mourir ce matin. Ruby just died this morning. So I, I made a bad decision. I played the match against the Dutch player, Tom Ocker. Lost badly and then took the plane back. I shouldn't have played. My mind was not, but Ocker would have killed me anyway. Anyway, I flew back, and that's it. I remember very well. I've always wondered about this night. Ruby, was it an accident? Did you drive into that tree on purpose? Did you want it all to end? Do you think Ruby's death was an accident? Ruby Rosa got up. Every time he was knocked down boxing, he got up. Every time he lost a race, he raced again. This is Marty Wall, Isabella's husband and co-author. Every time he lost a polo tournament, he played again. This guy was not somebody that gave up, and we don't think he would have consciously done that. It was 
slippery and he was drunk. Did he get in the car knowing that he was not capable to drive? Well, that would be very hard for Ruidosa to admit that. I mean, you know, he was a race car driver. He could handle his car. You know, or did he really purposely crash his Ferrari? Remember, he had that temper that he had to that he had to work on controlling and there was nobody else to play with. What about Taki? This is a man who actually knew Ruby, was with him the night he died. Taki said he remembered Ruby was happy that night because he'd been going through a bad period. What does that mean? You never know. He drank a lot and he was rather depressed at the end of his life. Ruby was 57, 58, coming to the end, having lived a very full life and without money and without you know, sort of the cachet of youth and vigor and all that. He had broken up with Odile. His uh, finances were in, were bad. I wouldn't have put it past Ruby to have driven into that tree. I wouldn't put it past him, but, you know, we'll never know. No use even thinking about it, because it's either he did it on purpose or he didn't. And, you know, sometimes you can feel the end coming. Maybe he helped it along. Sometimes you can feel the end coming. We all know what it is like to feel the end coming. Honestly, when I heard Taki say all of this, my heart started to race. It's surprising and not in a way. Because I know Ruby. I feel him. I am him sometimes, for better or for worse. And I've always had this feeling that Ruby committed suicide that morning in Paris. Newspapers around the world published obituaries about Ruby. They didn't speculate about suicide. The New York Times wrote that his car jumped the curb, as if the car were driving itself. The New York Times obituary mentions Ruby's work as a diplomat, his connections to Trujillo, and the murders he was suspected of. But most of the other coverage doesn't get into much detail. He's the, quote, suave Latin romantic who, quote, devoted his life to beautiful women, all-night parties, and fast sports cars. I did come across one remembrance that was a bit more thoughtful, a little deeper. It's in a column by the great poet Langston Hughes. He remembers Ruby this way, quote, I am all for colorful gentlemen of color, adding color and excitement, romance, and the light touch to this rather grim world of wars, poverty, and racism in which we live. I am all for colorful gentlemen of color, adding color and excitement to this rather grim world. I love this. That's what Ruby did. He added excitement to a lot of people's lives and color. But then, with each year that passed, that color faded. Ruby's name was no longer in the papers. No book publisher bought his memoirs and Ruby's life story. It just faded into the background. The world was dazzled by the adventures of a suave ladies' man who sipped cocktails in a bespoke suit, who lived a life of international mystery, dangerous, sexy, cool. But it wasn't Jaime Bond. 
It wasn't Javi Bond. The color had faded to white. Everyone knows about James Bond, but who remembers Porfirio Rubirosa? Why don't more people know about Ruby? Because, my dear, I don't know what your name is. Christopher. We've been chatting for an hour by now, but okay, Daki. People forget everybody, and you shall be forgotten, and just like I would be forgotten no matter who you are. You know, Ruby did not leave something behind like a book or a film or a church or or a scholarship or a charity that repeats his name. So obviously, we who knew him and loved him, we, we didn't forget him, but that was a small circle. Most people don't give a damn. They say it's some cheap playboy from Southern Domingo. That's all. That's, that's the re- reality of life. If you write terrific books or you do terrific things, your name will be repeated. If you don't, no. And Ruby hadn't done anything that uh, goes through the ages. It's, it's, uh, it's, as, it's as truthful as I can be. Ruby, you have added tremendous excitement and color to my life. You have been an invitation. You have invited me to stand proudly in my own brown skin. And I have. But you have also been a warning. Your death is a warning. A warning about how easy it is to lose yourself. Your memory is a warning too. And all throughout this journey, I've had this question, if Ruby can't be remembered, how can I? But maybe that's not the question I should be asking. Maybe I should be asking, how can I honor what's already here? Next time, I set foot in the place where I come from, a place where the color hasn't faded. Just think, Ruby probably walked through this very airport. Yeah, you think? We need, to, we need to Google that. Did Ruby walk through this airport? He's probably private plane, you know? The Dominican Republic. That's right, y'all. That's next time. Peace. Rubirosa is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher. It's created by me, your boy, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. Abigail Keel is our senior producer. Kevin Tidmarsh is our producer. Our story editor is John Delore. Our technical director is Casey Holford. Camille Stanley is the executive producer of Witness Docs. This episode was mixed by Brendan Burns. Readings of Ruby's memoir are performed by Victor Almanzar. Workhouse Media Inc. is also a contributing producer to this podcast, as are executive producers Amelia Baker, Mackenzie Monroe, and Ari Anderson. Original music for this podcast is composed and performed by Wilson Torres on the drums, Yeson Villamar on the keys, and Marcos Varela on the bass. Barum. Our theme song is composed by Allison Layton Brown. Special thanks to Domingo Quetzal and California Polo Club. Check them out, y'all. Go ride a horse. They got polo lessons. It's a lot of fun. Last but not least, please, please, please talk to me. Tell me what you learned in this show. What else you want to hear? Things you think I should know. Email rubirosa at stitcher.com with all of that. And if you like this show, please spread the word, subscribe, make a sign. It makes a difference. Peace, y'all.
life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.